Every single one of us was pursued when we didn't deserve it. Every single one of us has been embraced by a savior who is faithful and true. That's his name. And you need to remind yourself that God is right there with you. You need to remind yourself that God makes promises and that God is faithful to us. Precious promises. The promises of God in Christ are the life of faith and the quickeners of prayer. Friends, do you believe that promise? That God offers the promise of transformation if we surrender to Jesus Christ. Can't tell you how excited we are for our next series starts next week. You won't want to miss that. We're going through the book of Hebrews, looking at the person of Christ and how he is greater than all. We hope that you'll join us for that. But we have one more message in our current series on the promises of God that we've saved for Easter morning. Remember, we've talked about in this series that the promises of God are how we relate to God. Our entire relationship with God is built on these promises that he has given to us. And so today, we come to the ultimate promise, the promise of his victory and the promise of his resurrection. And today, as we begin, I want to share with you a true story. Uh, ESPN's documentary, The Four Falls of Buffalo, recounts the story of the Buffalo Bills in the 1990s when the franchise became the first team to play and lose not just one, not just two, not just three, but four Super Bowls in a row from the years 1990 to 1993. But it was one particular player, field goal kicker Scott Norwood, who would shoulder the greatest weight of defeat. Some of you may recall, if you're a Giants fan, that uh, during the 1990 Super Bowl, Super Bowl 25, uh, with just eight seconds left in the game, Norwood got up and missed a 47-yard field goal. It was wide right, and there was much rejoicing in Giant country where we are from. This is a happy memory for many of you. Any Giants fans out there? It is not a happy memory for Bills fans, and it was especially devastating for Norwood. They lost. Uh, the Buffalo Bills fans across the world were devastated instantly. I have a question for you. Uh, can you imagine what this was like for this kicker? I assure you, no one felt more pain than Norwood. Uh, even over 20 years after this failed attempt. Here's how he describes his feelings in that documentary. Through tears in a very emotional interview, how did you feel? Sorrow, I guess, and disappointment in letting down the teammates that are there on the field of battle with you. I get choked up thinking about it, putting myself back in that situation. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, may I ask you a question this morning? Have you ever felt like Scott Norwood? Do you know what it feels like to be defeated? The definition of defeat in the dictionary means this, to lose, uh, to be beaten, to be frustrated, nullified, or otherwise made obsolete, defeated. Maybe some of you are there right now. Maybe you feel defeated in some sense. Maybe you feel defeated at work or you feel defeated 
at home with your family situation, or you feel defeated in your health, or you feel defeated uh, with some sort of financial crisis, or maybe just this past crazy year has just felt like one defeat after another for you. Or maybe some of you, like Scott Norwood, you feel defeated because you made some mistake yourself. You kicked and it was wide right. You are the one who botched it. And every time you recall that, you realize there is no one else to look around to blame except for yourself. It was your fault and now you feel defeated. If that's you, may I encourage you this morning to listen to this promise and this message today because it is just for you. Every week we have a a promise from the scriptures that we're memorizing. The, The promise this week comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul says this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say that together with me, church? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. To fully understand and unpack this promise, please turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the words on the screen for you. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 35 is where we will be. Out of all the stories of the resurrection in the scriptures, this is my favorite account. I just love this story. There are three parts to the message today for you to follow along with. You're going to see the agony of defeat. You're going to see the promise of his victory, and then you're going to see how the resurrection ties both together. The agony of defeat, the the promise of his victory, and how the resurrection ties both together. Before we do that, let's pray together. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Heavenly Father, you have our attention. It is Easter. I pray for my friends here today, watching today, some of them who may feel even defeated right now. Maybe nobody even knows the defeat that they're carrying around, but Lord, you know, and you know how to fix it, and you know how to remind them of your victory in your own special way in their hearts. Would you show them the path that Easter lays before them? For we need to be reminded of this hope so desperately. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, amen. Amen. The context of Luke chapter 24 is Sunday afternoon. There's a lot of confusion at this point in the story. There's been some reports from some women that they had seen angels, but most of the others didn't believe them because probably like you and me, it sounded like a bunch of nonsense. We pick up the story as two people are on their way home having a conversation, a conversation that would ultimately transform and change their lives forever. The conversation is recorded for us in chapter 24, verse 13. Take a look. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. Here's two followers of Jesus. They're headed on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Why are they traveling? Perhaps they were in town for the Passover that had just occurred a few days earlier. And now they are headed back home. And what are they doing? Well, it says in verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. It had been a crazy weekend. All of the trials and all of the beatings and all of, you know, the the cross and the burial and there's been a lot to process. And so these guys are, they're processing together. They are, they are debriefing, they are rehashing, they are reviewing the events that had happened. Do you ever wonder what it was like during this time, the, the time between Good Friday 
and the realization of Easter Sunday. It's not a time we talk about that much. It's really not mentioned all that often in the scriptures, but we get a few glimpses like, like here. This is the time in history between the darkest day in the history of the world and the happiest day of the history of the world. It's a time of waiting and, and confusion and, and silence. This is a time of defeat. I think a lot of us can relate to this. This period of time, the, the cross represents what St. John of the Cross would call the, the, the dark night of the soul. This, this interim time of defeat, this is part of the human experience. Some of you know all about that. It's a, it's a spiritual time where your soul has a very difficult time connecting with God and getting any sense of consolation from Him. It's, it, it feels as if God is so very far away. This is where the two of these individuals are. They are talking, they are feeling defeated, and just when they are at their worst, something amazing happens. Verse 15. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. Jesus is dead. What is going on here? He walks up and joins them in step, so all their disappointment has now vanished and gone, right? Actually, no. The Scripture says, but they were kept from recognizing him. This is an intriguing comment. This is a strange comment. Whether they were lost in grief or just in shock or they just didn't quite have their act together, there's scales over their eyes and, and they think this is probably just some other traveler that's on the road heading toward their direction. And this is really important that you realize that they did not realize that he was with them at this time. You know, when you are walking through a season of defeat, even though Jesus may be walking right with you, you may not recognize him. So our Lord strikes up a conversation. He asks one of three questions. Question number one. He asks them, verse 17, what are you discussing together as you walk along? This is kind of crazy. Like nothing's unusual. I wonder if it was hard for the Lord Jesus to keep a straight face. Hey, what are you guys talking about? It's going to draw out some conversation here. And how do they respond? Well, it says, they stood still, their faces downcast. Defeat. Down and out. They stop in their tracks and they stand still. Like Scott Norwood, their faces are not lifted up, their faces are pointed down. They've lost it all. This is a glimpse of what life would be like for all of us if the resurrection had not occurred. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, if Christ is not raised, we are above all men most to be pitied. So them at this point, one of them responds to Jesus with an interesting and possibly, this is my New Jersey interpretation, possibly sarcastic question. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? Pause here. Wouldn't you love to have been up in a tree just watching this conversation take place and, and just kind of seeing this from a distance? Isn't this kind of funny? The guy's like, dude, where you been? 
under a rock the last few days? How could you not be aware of what's happening? Can, can you just see them kind of looking at each other, like rolling their eyes, like, who, who's this guy? You've got to be the only person in this city that's not aware of everything that has just happened. Wake up and smell the coffee, pal. Haven't you watched the news? Do you have your head in the sand? They think this guy has no clue. If they only knew. But from their perspective, they cannot believe that anyone coming out of Jerusalem does not know what has happened. So I think just for fun, Jesus kind of plays along and asks them question number two. What things? <laughs> Fill me in. What do you mean? In other words, I would love to hear your interpretation of what you think just happened on this past weekend. You tell me from your perspective, how do you think it went down? So in, in what seems to me to be a tone of annoyance, they go on to narrate their version of the events of Easter weekend. Look at verse 19. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. Really? What happened to him? Verse 20. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. You don't say. Well, what's the big deal with that? Well, the big deal is, verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. Notice the phrase, had hoped. Past tense. We did have hope, now we no longer have hope. Like the Buffalo Bills had hoped to win the Super Bowl, after that kick, they no longer had hope to win the Super Bowl. For them, Good Friday was not yet called Good Friday. Dr. Daryl Bach, one of my profs at seminary, in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke, says it this way, in their minds, the possibility of such a hope coming to fruition for Israel died with Jesus on the cross. Jesus was defeated, and so were they. It's too late now. It's over. Time to give up. Time to go back into the locker room. As my kids would say, dudes got clapped. It's over. For them, the message of the cross is the kick was wide right. It's this experience of defeat I want you to feel here for just a moment because it's really palpable in the text. Have you ever had that experience in your life? I know personally my family can really relate. Last year my father-in-law came down with a life-threatening bout of COVID-19. I know some of you have heard this story before, but many of you perhaps haven't. Check out this video summary of my wife and kids telling that story. So in March of 2020, at the very beginning of the pandemic, my father came down with COVID-19 in the middle of March. He went to the ER, he was running a fever, and within a few days of being in the hospital, he was rapidly deteriorating. We got a phone call that said he was rapidly deteriorating and he needed to go to the ICU. He went to the ICU and within a day was placed on a ventilator. Within a few days of being placed on the ventilator, my family and I got a call from a social worker and from palli palliative care and from uh, the head of ICU 
telling us that he was not going to make it. It was a really hopeless time because we didn't receive any kind of good news or um, glimmer of light in any phone call. And so the hardest part was knowing that the end was, I guess, probably inevitable. And I guess just getting it through our minds that this is probably going to be over was really hard for me to do. He got the first call that saying like he was like rapidly deteriorating is like what they said and they were like rushed him to the ICU and then I just remember like me and my sisters were like in the other room and we were like I think we were all kind of like in a state of like shock and in a state of like we just like didn't believe it and we didn't think that it was like happening. So we were just kind of like, uh, what do we do? Like, we think that that's like really bad, but we don't know what to do. So I remember my older sister was just like, go upstairs. And so we went upstairs and she was like, get your Bibles. And so we got our Bibles and we went back downstairs and we all like sat in a circle in the living room and we just started like reading like whatever Psalm kind of like came to our minds. And I just remember like our whole family was just so like defeated because we like had no idea what the heck was going on. And we just started like reading scripture and just like kind of meditating on it to like see if it'll bring like any peace. One thing that really was impressed upon my heart was the parable of the persistent widow in Luke chapter 18. And Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart and not give up. And I said, okay, Lord, you're speaking to me. I'm gonna be the persistent widow. I'm going to pray and I'm not going to give up. And so through all of those defeating phone calls, we went back to the Lord in prayer um, over and over and over again. And we went to the hospital at night to pray in the parking lot over and over again. And we would get built up in our faith. Then we would have a call with doctors and we would get feel defeated again in our faith. So it was a very bleak and very grim picture that was painted for us and it was a time that we had to really cling to the Lord and to praying for a miracle and for believing that we were going to see a victory and that we were going to see a miracle. So the Lord really pressed it upon our hearts to pray for a miracle from my father. When you're in the middle of a situation of defeat, it's the not knowing that's so crushing. It's the not knowing. If you knew ahead of time how it was going to work out, it would be a lot easier to endure it. But it's the not knowing in the middle of it that's so crushing. Like last night, I was rooting and watching Gonzaga. And of course, you know, overtime was there. And I didn't know that... that, that that Suggs was going to make that game-winning buzzer-beater shot. I was a nervous wreck throughout the whole the overtime. But if I would have known ahead of time, the, the dude's going to nail a three-pointer at the end. It's going to be okay. It would have been a lot easier. And when you're in the middle of it, the not knowing is what makes it hard. And I think when you're in the middle of the situations of life, you have three choices. Option number one is you can quit. When you're there, you can say, you know, this, I, I'm going to be defeated. I, this is the choice of despair. This is the choice of resignation. I'm just going to manage my expectations now, and I'm going to quit. Option number two 
is denial. This is when I decide to use cliches. This is when I decide to use formulas. You know, it, it's, uh, it's not so bad. It's when you talk about things as if they're better than they really are. Denial. Option number three. Wait. Sounds exciting, right? Not so much. Now, don't misunderstand. We're not talking about passivity. We're talking about waiting on God and recognizing during that time, I'm not in control of the universe. I'm going to wait on him, and during that time, I'm going to work with him and rest with him and pray with him. And when you feel defeated, friends, those are your three options on the table. Which one will you choose? Now, for our family, we don't always get this right, but for our family, for this situation, we chose option three. We chose to wait on the Lord. And so we would go to the hospital every night, 47 nights in a row, and pray for a victory. There was a song that we would listen to, and I remember the lyrics, and, and, and it said, the weapon may be formed, but it won't prosper. When the darkness falls, it won't prevail. Because the God I know knows only how to triumph, and my God will never fail. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory, for the battle belongs to the Lord. I'm going to see a victory. I'm going to see a victory, for the battle belongs to the Lord. And so we waited. We waited, and we learned so many lessons during that time, because there are lessons for you during the seasons of defeat that are not available to you in other seasons. It is then when you realize that Christ is all that you have, that Christ is actually all that you need. My encouragement to you, ladies and gentlemen, is if you are feeling defeated, choose option three. Wait on the Lord. Which brings us to movement two of the message, the promise of his victory. Back to our text in Luke chapter 24, there's these two people on the road. They are talking, they are explaining their defeat and all that has occurred. But then as they're explaining, they're kind of confused as they go on to share what was... uh, a version of the story that they didn't quite get yet, including some things from earlier that morning that they hadn't yet figured out. Look at verse 22. They're talking to Jesus, and they explain, in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Now I want you to notice in verse 24 that phrase, but him they did not see. In the Greek, when you write a sentence, you can put a word in the emphatic position. The word him is the position of emphasis there. They saw everything else but him. They saw the angels, they saw the empty tomb, but they missed the most important part. Jesus himself, the decisive piece of empirical evidence was missing. And so they are perplexed, and they are not yet quite convinced. And at this point, as they're walking on the road, Jesus takes the leadership in the conversation. And listen to what he says in a gentle rebuke in verse 25. He, that is the one they didn't see, said, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now, I want you to look very carefully at Jesus' words there. He calls them foolish because they lacked knowledge concerning the word of God. They knew some of it, but notice the word all the prophets have spoken. They did not read it all. They especially missed the part about the Messiah and his suffering. Jesus goes on to ask 
question number three. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Now that's a really good question. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. After this, Jesus goes on to mercifully give them, I think, what is probably the most exciting Bible study that's ever been given in the history of the world. As I would have loved to have just been able to see the conversation that took place from this point on. Maybe it was kind of like the video that we saw at the beginning of the message today. Or maybe Jesus started with Genesis and just walked them all the way through. Do you remember Genesis 3.15? It says that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, but yet he would also be bruised in the process? Or, or maybe he pointed out in Genesis 22 that the, the son of Abraham, the father, offered up his son as a sacrifice, and this was a picture of God the Father offering up his son as a sacrifice. Or, or maybe he skipped over to Exodus and said, do you remember the blood on the doorposts do you remember how the only reason why they could avoid the wrath of God was because they would apply the blood? Do you see how that's a picture of the Messiah suffering, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Or, or maybe he talked about Psalm 118 and said, don't you know it's the stone that the builders would reject that would become the cornerstone? Or maybe he said, did you read Daniel 9 when it says the, the Messiah would be cut off? Or maybe he just quoted from Isaiah the prophet who spoke about the Messiah describing him as despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like, men, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah says, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Amen. And as Jesus begins to explain and expound upon these scriptures, I imagine that the lights are starting to come on. Jesus shows them himself. Now, from our perspective, we look back upon the Old Testament and we see this rather clearly. For them, it was more veiled at the time. It reminds me of that movie, The Sixth Sense. Tim Keller uses this excellent illustration. He said, you can only see that movie twice because once you know the ending, it changes how you see the whole thing. The ending is so shocking. I heard about the ending before I ever saw it. If, if, if you don't know the ending or haven't seen the movie, I'm sorry, it came out in 1999. I'm about to ruin it for you, but um, you had your chance, okay? I don't want to spoil it, but Bruce Willis is dead. <laughs> Bruce Willis is a child psychologist, not very believable, trying to help this young boy who claims that he sees dead people. And it turns out that Bruce Willis is actually one of the dead people that this boy is seeing. And after you go back and you watch the movie a second time, it's so obvious that he's dead. His wife is never actually looking at him as he interacts with her. Nobody really talks to him throughout the whole movie except for the young boy. You can't help but watch the whole movie in light of the ending the second time. 
Here's my point. This is like the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. As we now go back through the scriptures, we can't help but to read them in light of the good news. It's all about him. It's all pointing to him. It is all about his sacrificial death and his victory on behalf of his people. It is all about the gospel. So here's Jesus explaining this to these two for the very first time. And then it says this in verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, for the day is almost over. Our Lord was going to keep on walking. Always the gentleman does not force himself upon you. He will wait for your invitation. But they want to hear more. It says, so he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Now, there's this ancient Jewish prayer that they would always pray in the breaking of the bread. Still, they pray it today. Uh, They'll say, blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who provides bread from heaven. And in that moment, as they saw the bread and they saw the brokenness of the bread, suddenly the lights started to come on. It says in verse 31, then... Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he walked and while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. The, the word burning there means to experience strong and powerful emotions. These guys are feeling some intense feelings, and they have a fire now that is lit underneath of them like never before. It was so exciting to them that after they arrived to Emmaus, they actually turn right back around and go back to Jerusalem seven miles the other direction. That's how excited they are. And then it says when they arrived, it says there they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Can you imagine the energy in this room? The scene here is total amazement. If this is true, then what does this mean? And what is God doing? And what is God going to do next? And what does it all imply? Now notice on the screen there, when exactly were their eyes fully opened? It says they were opened when he broke the bread. Friends, this is very important because if you want to understand the victory of Jesus, you have to understand how our Lord came to bring this victory. He did not come for the first time in great power and in glory and in victory, friends. It teaches us that he came the first time in a spirit of humility and in a spirit of meekness and in a spirit of weakness. And he was broken. And it even appeared that he was defeated at the cross. You see, many people have accomplished victory in in life. The unique message about Christianity is not that Jesus can bring you victory. The, The unique message of Christianity is that Jesus can bring victory out of defeat. That's the message. Which brings us to movement three. How the resurrection ties both of these things together. This is the one unique thing I think about the Christian faith. Our God is not drawn to or attracted to the people who have victory. 
He is drawn to those instead who have been defeated. The gospel is very clear that our God loves the losers, the unsuccessful, the unwanted, the unattractive. He loves the weak. He goes after Scott Norwood. He goes after those that the world does not lift up and those that the world does not want to emulate and those that the world does not want to be like. He goes after those who are defeated. And God says, if nobody's el- nobody else is gonna go into the loser's locker room and love them, I will go into their locker room and love them. And it's not just because he likes the underdog. It's because that is the very nature of our God and that is the very nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you see, when God came to earth in Jesus Christ, he was in every sense of the word defeated. He became the man who lost everything. He lost his followers. He lost his friends. He lost fellowship with the Father on the cross. He even lost his life. Why did he experience that defeat? Answer for you. And this is the good news of the gospel. God did not save us in spite of the defeat that he experienced on the cross, but through the experience of defeat he experienced on the cross. It is through the cross that he brings the victory. There is no other way around it. The gospel is not just the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel is the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he offers that victory after defeat to you and to me today as a gift. What will you do with that offer of victory to you? Friends, the message of Christianity, I'll say it again, is not for those who are victorious. It is only for those who will fully admit they are defeated. And can I say, with all due respect, if you cannot admit that you are hopeless and that you are sinful, and that you are defeated, and that you have no chance of victory apart from the grace of God, then you are not weak enough, and you are not defeated enough for this offer of victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and his great salvation that he offers for the world. Don't you see that God chose to reveal himself to those of us who walk on the road in defeat and say, This is exactly how my salvation works. This is the upside-down nature of my kingdom. The last are going to be first, and the first are going to be last. I came for the losers. I choose, 1 Corinthians says, the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. I choose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. I choose even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are so that no one will ever boast in my presence and God alone will receive the glory and we will crown him with many crowns, this lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem rounds all, drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for me and hail him as my matchless king throughout eternity. Thank God the gospel says he loves those who are defeated. He loves you. He loves me. And he can bring you victory even out of your defeat. You see, on Good Friday, spiritually speaking, 
the gates of hell and the heavenly authorities and the spiritual high places, they thought that Jesus missed the kick. They thought that Jesus Christ was wide right. It turns out that it was Satan who was wide right. It turns out that though Satan thought he had conquered Jesus, the reality was that Jesus had conquered him, and not only him, but sin and death and the grave at the same time. Remember that story I shared earlier about the Buffalo Bills? After Norwood missed that field goal and they lost the Super Bowl, nothing prepared Norwood for the greeting that he would receive in Buffalo the very next week. Here's how Norwood described the scene. He said, quote, we got back to town and I did not know what to expect. What I really wanted was to, was to remain behind the scenes. What I really wanted was to kind of fade away. Uh, but unfortunately, he said, there was this chant that started to intensify in its volume as nearly 30,000 screaming fans met Norwood and his teammates in Buffalo after their loss, many of them chanting and screaming, We want Scott. We want Scott. Norwood said, quote, I was not expecting to be called up to the front to say anything in a moment like this. He said, I think that's maybe when the truest feelings arise as I began to speak off the top of my mind and I just simply said this, I don't know what to say, but I know this, I have never felt more loved than I do right now. That's the good news of the gospel of grace that God actually comes to the losers and offers us his love and his grace. My friends, may I ask, why are you here today? Maybe you're here because you're curious. Or maybe you're here because it's it's Easter, it's traditional, it's the thing to do. You, you, You watch church online, you come with your family. May I humbly suggest that you might be here for another reason? That perhaps God himself brought you in an earshot of this news today so that he could sit you still and so that he could give a message to you this Easter and the message would be something like this. You matter to me. I understand everything about your life. I know you. I made you. I know all of your defeats. I know all of your sins. But I sent my son to die for you. And I raised him up. And I did that so that I could offer you his victory to make possible a restored relationship with me. Friends, that's the good news of Easter. God knows you. He wants you to know him. I want to finish that story about what God did for my family this past Easter. As the worship team comes on the stage, check out this video. On Good Friday, we had a phone call with Dad and we could see him laying there and of course he was in a medically induced coma and we had seen him many times like this with the ventilator and my sister was on the call and she just began to cry out and cry the cry out the name of jesus over and over and we saw dad move and that gave us a little hope of course they told us that it was reflexes and things like that but we believed that the lord was doing something. Um, The day before this, the doctors told us we really ought to consider taking him off the ventilator and we told them we're not ready. We need more time to fast and pray and believe God for a miracle. So we saw him move on Good Friday and then the next day 
The Lord performed such an amazing miracle. My father did a 180 degree turn. He all of a sudden started getting better and better and better when they said he was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, I got a phone call on Easter Sunday of 2020 after dad had been on the ventilator for two and a half weeks. Uh, the ICU doctor called me. I said, how is my dad? He said, he's doing quite well, actually. He said he's off the ventilator, he's breathing on his own, and he's following commands. You know, my grandson, Dominic, said to his mother, said, Mom, wouldn't that be wonderful if Grandpa was to wake up on Resurrection Day? My lungs were gone, I couldn't breathe. So therefore, you know, it's time for me to go. So if that was the case, then, you know, if that was the Lord's plan, I wasn't afraid of it. But I'm glad, you know, the, the Lord, you know, Whatever the Lord does for me, that's the best for me. Easter is resurrection, and then, and then that morning, I believe, is when the Lord turned it around for me. I felt like, you know, that I was resurrected. There was no way, with the condition I was in, what they told my family that I could not possibly make it. And this, this year, this one year ago now it's been, the Lord performed a miracle, and 46 days after being in the hospital, he was released. The day my grandfather was released from the hospital was almost like a dream because we were longing to see him day after day after day for over a month. I just wanted to see his face, and I ever wondered if I would ever be able to see him in person again. And I remember just standing there feeling immense joy and relief, and I felt like we had begun something new. I was supposed to go from Honolulu Medical to Kessler Rehab Place. So on 7 o'clock, they picked me up on my, May 5th of uh, 2020. And as soon as I'm coming out of the hospital there, you know, I saw these people waving and shouting and I didn't know what's going on, you know. So I, I was kind of taken back a little bit. Then I saw my granddaughter Lissy over there at the end, and I think I made high contact with her, and and I could tell she was so elated. That her grandpa made it out of the hospital. If you're going through a time where you feel defeated and you feel broken and you feel like God like isn't listening to you or isn't like in the picture, just remember that like he calls on us in like even in our darkest moments and he's like always there even if you don't see him. Um, just like spending time with him, meditating on like who he is and the scriptures that you feel him like calling out to you. Well, Easter's all about that. That when Christ came back from the dead, he conquered sin. And we can have hope in him because we also one day will experience the resurrection if we believe in Jesus Christ. So it was a resurrection for Christ, but one day it also be a resurrection for us. And uh, what a glorious day that's going to be. us, my father-in-law's healing story on Easter is the story of God's victory that I will cherish in my heart for the rest of my life. God did not have to do that, 
If he did not do that, we would still be celebrating Easter and we would be celebrating God's promises, but in a little bit of a different way. Uh, This year, my father-in-law is back at church worshiping with us today. I don't know if you realize this, but he's he's right there on the the front row. We love you, Dad. We prayed for you, and uh, you are a testimony, testimony to the power and the promises of God and the way the Lord Jesus gives us the victory. And all we can say is with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how very grateful we are. I, th- I thank you for my friends here today. I thank you for your healing power and the victory that you displayed on Easter over sin, death, and the devil. I pray, God, for my friends who may be struggling even right now, that they would experience a victory in their lives through placing their faith in you. I ask that you draw near to them and gently share with them the good news of your grace. Assure them of your resurrection power that lives on the inside of them, strengthening them for today and giving them bright hope for tomorrow. Lord, we've gathered in this place together on Easter to worship you and say all hail King Jesus and to crown you with many crowns. We lift up our hearts and our worship before you this morning, for you are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.